Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. This week, we're focusing on two crises facing India and its Prime Minister Narendra Modi. The growing threat from the coronavirus and deadly clashes between Indian and Chinese troops. My guest this week is Pratap Banu Mehta, Professor of Political Science and former Vice-Chancellor of Ashoka University, just outside New Delhi. So how will the Modi government cope with two simultaneous crises, China and COVID-19? In 1962, a border dispute between India and China bubbled over into war. India had been ill-prepared to defend herself. Ever since then, there's been an unresolved territorial dispute between China and India and continuing tensions. But on my many visits to Delhi over the years, when I've discussed India's foreign policy priorities with policymakers and academics, very few of them thought that there was actually a danger of war with China. The real threat was often felt to be Pakistan. Indeed, since coming to power in 2014, Prime Minister Modi's got out of his way to get on with China's president, Xi Jinping. And these are very special weavings in the Kanchipuram style, silk and gold image of the president of China. But now Mr Modi is facing the most serious foreign policy crisis of his period in office with Indian media and politicians asking hard questions and demanding action. This is the former leader of the opposition, Rahul Gandhi. This foreign policy clash comes at a time when there's a growing sense of domestic crisis around the coronavirus. COVID-19 was always going to pose a huge threat to a country with the social and economic makeup of India. An estimated 1.4 billion people live there, and according to the World Bank, almost 200 million of them are living in poverty. So locking down the economy was always going to be hard. Nonetheless, at the end of March, the Indian government announced one of the toughest lockdowns in the world. So India has been placed under a 21-day nationwide lockdown. Cramps formed at pharmacies and shops shortly before the midnight deadline. Non-essential businesses have been closed. Hundreds of people crowding together. Migrant workers in the state of Bihar filled overcrowded buses, some even climbed on the roofs, in a desperate attempt to return to their homes. Millions of Indians took to the roads heading out of the cities, and Bollywood film stars took to the airwaves, with public health messages and songs urging Indians to stay strong as they were ordered not to step outside of their homes for weeks on end. Comparison karke dil chota ho jayega, abhe rende na yaar. 
Ideally, a lockdown would help to stamp out the coronavirus or at the least buy time for a country's health system to prepare itself. But neither of these things seems to have happened. The number of cases and deaths continues to rise sharply. And in the worst hit areas, such as the capital Delhi, the healthcare system is buckling. Harrowing videos of desperately ill people appealing for help from inside Delhi's hospitals have gone viral. Please help. Please help. These twin crises, China and COVID-19, have struck a Modi government that was already facing serious domestic and international criticism over allegations of growing authoritarianism and mistreatment of Muslim citizens. When I got Pratap Bhani Mehta on the line from India, I asked him first about the clashes on the Chinese border. This is arguably the biggest foreign policy crisis India has had in the last 40 years, to be honest. The loss of life is severe, 20 confirmed deaths, but the estimate is that there will be more casualties. And frankly, a crisis, I think, at this point where it's not clear that there's going to be an easy resolution. India will certainly see uh, the fact that, from its point of view, China has occupied what India claims to be its territory and inflicted casualties on Indian soldiers as a kind of humiliation of sorts. It's not easy to think of a framework which would allow both sides to walk away from this very easily. China has globally been pursuing an extraordinarily aggressive foreign policy. And frankly, I think the aggression has uh, surprised almost all countries around the world. And it seems to have been locked in a position where I think I don't think it's going to be easy for China to also walk away from the situation. So, yes, I mean, it's, it's a very, very tense, tense moment. Can you give a sense of the mood, say, in the Indian media and in government? Because... From what I gather from uh, friends in on the Chinese side, the Chinese side and the official media, at least, are, are, are for the moment really playing this down. But what's the atmosphere in Delhi? I think it's historically been always the case that, you know, yes, perhaps a little less significant for China than China is for India, given how powerfully 1962 looms in Indian historical imaginations. I think I would summarize the mood in the following way. I think there is consensus across the political spectrum that China is displaying not just an unusually aggressive intent, but that it has almost double-crossed India, that the India-China relationship was one where Mr. Modi had invested a lot of personal capital. And I think there's a palpable sense that China has betrayed that spirit. So I think the sense of anger is quite deep. I think there's already talk, uh, at least in civil society in the media, of India having to find an economic strategy where the India-China trade and economic relationship can be decoupled. I mean, I think since 1976, India's approach to China has been, look, put cold water on the border dispute and deepen our relationship in almost all other areas, particularly economics, trade, cooperation, a whole range of other things. And I think it's very, very clear now that that strategy will be rethought very radically after this incident. Is there a concern, though, I mean, which I think I've picked up for some time in policymaking circles in Delhi, that India is, to use the kind of pre-First World War language uh, Germany used, being encircled, uh, that Pakistan is now very much in China's camp, that Sri Lanka is a a client state of China? Um, Absolutely. And there is now the view in India that engagement with China 
And particularly, I think the view that was shared by many countries across the world, that the more you deepen your economic engagement, the less likely you're going to have a security crisis. I think that view is certainly, I think, losing out. And I think the question India, in a sense, needs to ask is, how do you address this asymmetry of power that exists between China and India currently? Because, uh, you know, the Chinese economy is about four times India's. Um, and so I think you're going to see a renewed focus on, I think, building up the basic ingredients of India's economic power, because fundamentally everything else flows from that, right? Including the fact that your neighbors don't find you as attractive as they find China comes from the fact that you've not been able to deliver as much uh, infrastructure, perhaps as much aid as you promised. And diplomatically, does it mean that India now doubles down on its relationship with the with Japan, with the United States, and so on? Um, I mean, yes, certainly, I think India will go into diplomatic overdrive. And I think this is one of those moments in world politics where I think the China question is in everyone's minds, right? Australia to Japan, who the United States. So certainly, I think those diplomatic engagements will intensify. But I do think there is a sense in Delhi that ultimately, when it comes to the border question, India is more or less on its own. When you have at least the perception that Chinese troops have crossed into Indian territory and fired at Indian soldiers, it's hard to imagine any other power coming to your aid in a way that might actually materially change the reality on the Indian border. And bringing it back to the domestic situation and coronavirus, I mean, Presumably, this happens at a very bad time because there's a growing sense there's a health crisis which has enormous economic and social dimensions. Yes. I mean, obviously, the timing couldn't be worse. There's a health crisis. The economic fallout is still not entirely clear. On the other hand, I mean, I think depending on how the government plays this out, maybe this was just the jolt India needed to wake it from its slumber. And saying that, look, the fundamental basis of power and standing in the international system has got to be your economic growth and economic development. And I think that's something we have uh, neglected over the last two or three years. I can't think of any crisis of this magnitude in India's foreign policy. So hopefully it will concentrate a few minds. Turning to coronavirus, I mean, how much is it felt now that the government of Narendra Modi was always going to struggle with this? Or is it possible to accuse him of mishandling it? The irony is that, you know, Prime Minister Modi gave the country four days notice to prepare for this kind of staged event where people would, in a sense, come out and, you know, bang pots and pans and, you know, show their solidarity with health workers. And yet he gave four hours before the lockdown. I think the second thing about the lockdown, and this is Mr. Modi's style, is that, you know, he uses this Indian word meaning tapasya or sacrifice or penance a lot. And the whole framing of the lockdown was, as Indian citizens, it's now our time to do penance. And that's all well and good. Everybody understood that we needed discipline, that sacrifices would have to be made. But to tell millions and millions of poor people that do penance, while the state will not do its part in terms of giving them income support, in terms of adequately distributing food for them, uh, I mean, that was a truly extraordinary dereliction of duty on the state's part. And Mr. Modi has this extraordinary ability to sort of, you know, all forth for the sacrifices of the citizens without the corresponding accountability of the state being set in. And so, I mean, 
trying to separate out the economic effects and the effects of the disease, how much privation did the lockdown actually cause? Or was it lifted in a way just in time to to get people out of at least the risk of, of hunger caused by just being thrown out of work very suddenly? What we saw, particularly the scenes in the first couple of weeks, was literally stripping millions of hardworking people of their dignity. They had to queue outside philanthropic organizations, temples, gurdwaras, charitable organizations, literally to get maybe a meal a day if they were lucky. And in fact, the crisis would have been much more catastrophic if India's civil society had not stepped in to help out with food distribution, things of those kinds, right? I think the second thing that was significant was that he broke the bond of trust between whatever little trust that existed, frankly, between migrant labor and the state and their employers at large. The result was that when we came out of the lockdown, Most migrant labor wanted to return home. In fact, one of the big challenges that the Indian economy is facing now is actually a shortage of labor where you need it because labor does not anymore trust the system. They were abandoned both by their employers and by the state. What is the kind of overall assessment of the balance between the health risks and the economic risks? In India's case, uh, it's not an either or, right? I mean, if the economy collapses, that also poses a health risk in some ways. Um, You know, the attraction of the lockdown was that it's a very simple, blunt instrument that's easy to enforce. But if you want to come out of a lockdown and inspire confidence in the people, then you need to put a much more complicated machinery into place. You need a lot more contact tracing, Obviously, you need the health system to be in as robust a shape as possible. And I think it's fair to say that we did not use the time of the lockdown to prepare for these support systems to be put in place as adequately as we had hoped. Why did we not use this pretty long lockdown to make sure that the support systems were in place, that when we emerged from the lockdown, the process would be somewhat less riskier and smoother than it is, in fact, turning out to be. And of course, I mean, around the world, the pandemic is making everybody look at their own system of government and how it works. And one of the criticisms that existed before of of Prime Minister Modi, which you've been very vocal about, is that he was eroding India's tradition of uh, free debate, that he had distinctly autocratic tendencies. Do you think that that has played a part in this crisis? I mean, I've heard friends who've spoken, say, at seminars with Indian business people say that he felt that they were very, very reluctant to say anything in public that appeared critical of the government because they might pay a price. Absolutely. And, and, you know, you just have to look actually at the actions of this government. One of the most remarkable things that happened during the pandemic is that almost all the authoritarian actions of government actually continued pretty much at the same pace. To just give a very glaring example, uh, as you know, there were riots in Delhi just before the lockdown took place in the context of this protest against the Citizenship Amendment Act. And one of the most disturbing things is that all during the lockdown, the government has continued its partisan prosecution of the protesters, uh, including jailing a significant number of students, intellectuals, 
And that's a particularly kind of egregious example of how that agenda still continues to be pursued. I think the independence of institutions, particularly to critical institutions, media, seem to be still very much in the thrall of a government. But most disturbingly, and I think the most shocking in all of this, the Supreme Court's abdication to the government uh, continues with as much intensity as was the case before the lockdown. The Supreme Court is still not hearing habeas corpus hearings with the kind of urgency that you would think a civil liberty suit would require. You know, these are all visible signs that that particular agenda of government, which is authoritarianism and sectarianism, actually is still continuing in full flow. So finally, what does that tell us about the whole Modi project, if you like? Because when he was first elected, I think it was 2014, he was portrayed, I think, both in India and, and outside as primarily an economic reformer, a guy who would get the, uh, get the economy going, whatever his cultural baggage. In his, his second term Modi and pandemic Modi, if I can call him that, much more focused uh, on the, the Hindu nationalist side. No, he is focused on that. And to be honest, in principle, at least the way the government sees it, there's no contradiction between them. In fact, you could say that they could strengthen each other, which is that if a good economic performance produces major economic reform, it actually consolidates the Hindu nationalist constituency behind him. I think the bigger challenge for him is we must remember this fact that India's economy was slowing down even before India went into the pandemic. Almost all the key indicators, exports, credit uptake, the fiscal deficit, they had already put India into a relatively vulnerable position uh, even before going into the pandemic. And it's actually cut down India's headroom as far as an economic revival goes. To be fair, I think he has tried to use the pandemic to push through a couple of significant economic reforms, one in the agriculture sector, opening up the domestic market, doing away with a whole range of marketing regulations that had hobbled Indian agriculture. Many governments have tried to do labor reform, but many of these reforms, I think, are being done in a way in which they're not likely to yield the dividends that the government actually expects of these kinds of reforms. Uh, So, for instance, in the case of labor reform, instead of crafting sensible labor regulation legislation, many of the state governments basically said, we are going to suspend all labor regulation for two to three years, including safety regulation, for example, including grievance regressal, for example. And that's the kind of authoritarian reform that is probably going to set this government up for some kind of backlash. I think there are some serious questions to be asked about where this government is headed. Okay, well, we'll have to leave it there for now. But thank you very much indeed to Pratap Banu Mehta for joining me from Delhi for this week's podcast. Thank you very much. That was Pratap Banu Mehta of Ashoka University, ending this edition of the Rachman Review. And if you could spare a few moments, we'd love to hear from you about what you think about the show and how it can improve. We're running a survey, which you can find at ft.com slash Rachman Survey. You might also like to subscribe to the FT's Coronavirus Business Update, a level-headed expert email briefing on how the pandemic's affecting global markets, business, and the workplace. Visit ft.com slash RachmanReviewCovid to sign up for free access for 30 days. There's a link in our show notes. And please join us again next week. You can find us in all the usual podcast apps.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.